0: where my business experience has been super helpful is that I was very, very thoughtful about initial conditions because um, when you think about it, it's really the business model you start with kind of shapes the operations and processes of your company. Yeah. And what I mean to say here is if you start free, right, your game plan is to get as many eyeballs as possible so that you can, you know, get as many advertisers as possible. If you start initial conditions as a subscription company, you're much more focused on, am I reaching the right audience? Am I reaching the audience that can pay for this? Am I unlocking valuable topics that people feel like they wouldn't read anywhere else?
1: Welcome to Media Voices, everybody. We are back after a pff, long hiatus to discuss all the news and the views from the media world over the past couple of weeks. So I'm Chris Sutcliffe.
2: I'm Esther Thorpe.
3: And I'm Peter Houston.
2: And that clip you just heard is from my interview with Snigda Sir, founder and CEO of The Juggernaut, which is a content and community platform for global South Asians. She talked to me when I had a bit more voice about founding a media business with a business background rather than a journalism one how her knowledge of media VC and funding has influenced how she runs the publication and what she's learned from paywalling content and pricing strategies.
1: But before we kick off, we want to give a shout out to MediaGazer, who are going to be running a promo for our newsletter this week. MediaGazer is like the homepage of breaking trends and commentary for publishers and media owners. And it's definitely a site that at least me and Esther check on a daily basis before putting our newsletter together. So it's incredibly helpful. You should go and check those out. You can go to MediaGazer.com or follow them on Twitter at MediaGazer. We've said that like I don't check MediaGazer. <laughs> well, you that just didn't very mention it. Exclusionary. <laughs> Uh, normally we do a main story every week, but the fact is that we're coming back after a long hiatus in which we did the publisher podcast awards, which went really, really well and basically just we took an Easter break that was long overdue and as always happens as soon as we announced that we're taking a break about 18 different stories just erupt that have the potential to disrupt the um the fabric of the media landscape forever the, so I was,
2: we- I was actually I was actually kind of quite glad we were on holiday for a lot of things
3: yeah. you say hiatus I see it more as a mental health break <laughs> to be honest.
1: so what we're going to do is just rattle through uh, some of the big stories we're going to offer our thoughts on it very briefly it might well be that we come back and do a longer exploration of one of these in the future but for now we're just Almost going to do a snapshot tour through everything that happened while we were away. And
2: we've got to start with Elon Musk, haven't we?
1: Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, I feel uh. like we've been, it's, it's bizarre to me that since we went away, this story has emerged and has become the defining media story so far of the year. So, obviously, Elon Musk is attempting to buy up Twitter with uh, I think it's 43 billion thoughts.
2: It's not screaming. Is, is it completely 100% a done deal at this point? No,
3: no no, 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 no. Not even close.
2: That's what everybody's reporting like, oh, I'm leaving Twitter because Musk is in charge now. And oh, I can see the algorithms have changed. And it's like, you can't. He, he hasn't actually bought it yet because it still needs shareholder approval, doesn't it?
1: Last I heard yesterday, there was a uh, lawsuit yeah. against the Musk that might, that might that actually prevent this.
3: Members of the board sooner. Yeah. Or what are sooner. Um, not sooner, but soon against. That's maybe. Yeah.
1: And even if <laughs> that gets approval, it will be six months before anything that he can put into effect will will actually be visible on the site itself so yeah there's nothing in the immediate
3: i have um, to declare an interest here oh you have twitter stock. i own 450 dollars worth of twitter shares well what was it how much is that worth (laughs) it's mental it is absolutely mental because it's it's like all over the place it is up there since i bought them last year is up 13.59 percent so
2: because my my this is how this is how much started off he didn't say oh, i'm gonna buy the company he said oh i'm gonna buy all your shares for he put them yeah. up by about 15 20 didn't he and he's like if, if you all sell well, it to me that's what i'll I buy think, it for
3: I think
0: and everybody
2: 50, just assumed he was trolling
3: 51 dollars maybe 52 i think i so, made
1: about 50 dollars Well, you've made $50, but the interest... No, no, look,
3: I'm just looking now. I made
1: $61.17. Well, plow that straight back into Media Voices. Uh, But (laughs) we were talking there about it not having an impact. Yeah, exactly. It not having an impact on um, Twitter in the immediate future, but it has impacted its ability to generate advertising revenue because brands are a little bit reticent now about appearing (laughs) on what might be that old toxic hellscape that we all knew and loved before Twitter. I actually did make some incremental changes that made it a slightly more brand safe environment.
3: I think that's one of the things that's important to remember here is that he can actually make this worse. <laughs> you know, Twitter is an awful place. It's an awful place, particularly for certain, you know, for, for women, for anyone, anyone high profile, yeah um it's an awful place already right hand left um but he can make it worse he can definitely <laughs> make it worse
1: we're going to be talking about this inevitably next week so maybe oh, we don't spend beautiful. too long on it today just to say that we've all been screaming about this internally mm. hey talking about screaming internally talk tv <laughs> uh has launched with what was initially quite kind a very impressive audience figure, but those viewing figures have tailed off quite significantly. Peter, why don't you take us through?
3: Uh, I hadn't seen any of these ads, but they seemed to be everywhere in London. They were everywhere, yeah. Uh, and it was this. That's, that's
2: actually quite an important point. The, the adverts weren't anywhere outside of London. Like, I drive around no, a I lot of it, and I didn't see a single well, ad until I crossed the flyover.
1: You say that, but there were ads, at least in Australia. I know that there were some <laughs> ads for, for this in Australia. Uh,
2: well, so,
3: so these ads were basically. Pierre Morgan's big pan face, uh, and, and of you know, sort of "love me or hate me, you can't ignore me" sort of message, um, and which is a weird, which is a weird way to sell a
1: TV show. Yeah, the mar- <laughs> yeah, the marmite of media.
3: Yeah. Anyway, uh, it turns out people can't ignore him because yeah. when he started, well, I can't remember what his numbers were, but they were impressive. Uh no they're not. Um mm-hmm. it just all went to shit for Mr. Morgan. In,
1: in fact, about half,
2: are... half a million views I thought you had for the first one, that's dropped to sort of like twenty thousand now.
1: Yeah. It's it's interesting. We do need to bear this in mind, is that they are as GB News did they're attempting to shift the goalposts here. They're saying, Oh, we don't actually care about our human figures on the linear channel because it's all about how well we do on social. Mm-hmm. Why launch a linear channel then?
3: yeah that's nonsense.
1: And I know that talk TV is different from GB news in that it is effectively the kind of like, they're just pointing a camera for the most part at the talk radio stations. People who back GB news, people who back talk TV do it for the influence. Mm. And it seems like they're, they're not getting that influence with these viewing figures, which often bar registers like a zero, nobody watching. So how long is this sustainable for them?
3: I guess as long as they're getting headlines and they feel like they're making a
1: point, but are they making headlines? The big headline that we oh, saw this week nice. was the inside story of GB News, and it's completely disastrous first year, which is a fantastic oh, read That was brilliant. You, Yeah, you definitely need to check that on New Statesman.
3: Yeah, that was excellent. But- it's,
2: it's probably some more, more sort of figures, but I think the, the audience they're targeting tend to be sort of slightly older people actually watch linear TV, mm.
3: um,
2: and, and they've often got, you know, they've got a station they've probably watched for the last 20 or 30 years and actually convincing them to change.
3: Nah, I don't agree with that though. Do you Because not? they nah, because they think the that, that those TV stations have gone all woke.
2: <laughs> they but think the is BBC that, it,
3: is like. a lot of that woke. must
2: must be talk because they're not actually switching when there are other options available.
1: But this is the thing, like we've the the sentiment for a while, or at least the sentiment that these people are trying to get across was go woke, go broke. But the opposite actually seems to be true. We've seen yeah. uh, so many people whose who's sole selling point is that they are controversial, uh, just crash and burn over the past six months, which I think is fantastic, because I mean, hopefully it, it will help shift away from that kind of to attention second, industrial complex.
2: The point about this is that, you know, Pierce Morgan's opening interview was with Donald Trump. Did yeah. either of you notice that?
3: Yeah. No, they, they, this, The the and GB News did the same thing with, what's his name? The other pan-faced idiot. Oh, Farage
2: that, that, yeah Farage and that's the thing is actually like and you know Trump has Trump's has got his own social media platform now I don't remember there being any reporting about what he said on it people find he's, not, he's, he's, belly, be like, he's just, belly on it just ignoring this which is good I think well, I think
3: yeah I, I think in a, in a weird way that's reassuring that most people are mostly good
1: oh, I mean we could do a whole thing on truth social it's just been an na- absolute disaster <laughs> Uh, speaking of disasters, um, <laughs> Cultural Secretary Lady Dorries wants to privatise Channel 4. Sorry, uh,
3: sorry, sorry. So-called
1: culture So-called Secretary. culture Secretary. Okay. Um, this one's interesting because so many of the reasons that the government has given for its uh, privatisation has been because it cannot survive in an age of streaming. <laughs> the streaming economy seems to have absolutely collapsed over the past couple of months.
2: To say it's absolutely collapsed, I don't think it's right. I think there's been a certain amount of right-sizing mm. post-pandemic. <gasps> And, and this, happened, this happened across any kind of subscription thing, any kind of, um, you know, with your hobby magazines, every everything, people are finally getting back out there, getting back to their normal lives. They, they are getting back into their, quote, normal behaviours. There's been a little bit of a dip, but probably if you put that in the context of where the growth was beforehand, we're probably about on track where we should have been in 2022 without the mm. huge bumps of the pandemic.
3: Don't worry.
2: And the, the Netflix stuff, like, can we, they've grown so much. They're one of the biggest streaming services in the world. You're gonna hit a ceiling at some point. It's like Apple have hit the number, of the ceiling of the number of people that will buy iPhones. At some point, you just stop growing.
3: Also, I don't agree that it's just about right sizing. We're in a different economic
1: situation.
3: People are going to cut Netflix. They're but, not going to stop I, eating. They're not going to stop heating their houses. They're going to cut Netflix.
1: But to a sort of like to bring this back to Channel Four, then I've seen a number of articles places saying, "Oh, actually, we're pivoting to advertising again." And Channel 4 is still very strong in terms of advertising.
3: Well, if there is a God, she is a media watcher because.
1: <laughs> Has anybody ever said that before?
3: The day after Nadine Doris says, we're going to privatise Channel 4 to be more like Netflix, Netflix lost 40% off its stock price. <laughs> <laughs>
2: It doesn't have to be either subscriptions or advertising. You mm. can have a healthy model that supports both. And the fact Netflix are looking at bringing in, ad, you know, an ad-supported tier for much, much cheaper. Well, actually, you know, during bust times, that's then what people need. And it's not to say, you know, streaming's collapsed or oh, Reader revenues over or anything like that. It's, it's just adapting your model for the times people are in and giving people different options.
3: Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And, and I think and also that's not what rely I mean.
2: not not relying on one revenue stream.
3: But that that's what I Makes mean though. Sense. It's not that when you're in that position where the the economy is not great, you have to be the subscription that people don't want to give up. You want to be the one that they hold on to. I did a wrap-up piece for Spiny on this. And Jack Marshall was writing about for tool, the toolkit newsletter saying that everyone rushed into subscriptions didn't think too hard about the product offer and just got it out there. And now is the time to fix it and deliver proper value on subscriptions. I, also, I, 100%, I believe that, yeah. 100% believe in that, yeah.
2: A lot of people are taking this kind of moral stance, like, oh, we're only reader revenue because, you know, we don't want to take dirty ad money. And it's like, it's perfectly possible to take it and to do a good ad product and not kind of, yeah, not go down that other line. It's just a bit odd.
3: What's that song, Filthy Money? <laughs> <laughs> there, should have been a, just, there should have been a little cut
2: in there. Hang on, let me make a note for the edit. The ad market is absolutely booming. The amount of money going into it is, is almost silly.
1: Well, despite that money piling back into advertising, it seems like there is a little bit of reticence about the future of media in general. So, Peter, why don't you take us through what Brian Morrissey said here?
3: Well, it just goes, it goes back to that what we talked about with Netflix. is The economy is <laughs> fundamentally... People neglect to learn the lessons of like so sort of the past recession in 2008. And what Brian is saying is that we've got to learn those lessons. And he he writes a list of things that people need to start doing uh, in terms of checking out their own businesses, focusing on ROI, looking for opportunities, um, a, a little bit of like what Esther was saying there about, you know, properly right-sizing and mixing it up in your
1: business. But here's the here, Okay, I have a question then. Just to play Devil's Avocado, shouldn't we all have been doing this all along? It's maybe just a little bit of a crunch now that's that's forcing that upon but us.
3: People don't fix the roof when the sun is shining, right? They fix the roof when it's raining.
1: That is that is poetry, what you've just done there.
2: Now people are calling the last ten years the good times, and now we're in the downturn, <laughs> apparently. So. But I think it's it's a thing that it you can put sort of an awful lot of puff and spin around your business during those good times and make it look good and actually when things start to struggle it really strips back you know the people that are doing well will will continue to do well and the people that were sort of hyping up a lot of it will just suddenly crash
3: what's that line warren buffett's line and brian uses it actually when the tide goes out you find out who's been swimming naked
2: (laughs) that's it it was brian i knew i don't know exactly that
3: and after that rambling nonsense, let's move on to <laughs> News in Brief.
1: This one's depressing.
3: So this is a story from the Press Gazette from 25th of April, and it basically points out that local news sites don't do local news anymore. We knew that, um, but actually seeing the numbers is kind of a bit of a wake-up call. Um, they looked at traffic data for 50 local news sites. Um and about a third of their audience is local, but, you know, there's some that are at 60% shout out to Wigan today, get 63% of its readers locally. That's a JPI title. Um, a best reach title is Newcastle's or the Northeast Chronicle Live, 40%. But the bottom five are all under 20% and they're all reach. Although they get daily, daily record in there, so I don't know how they decide Yeah. That. That was, local that was news, title, that's a Scottish title. Anyway, doesn't matter. Uh, Manchester Evening News, for example, is under 20%. And as long as and there is local news on these sites, you know, if you go along to the MEN homepage, there's stories about local districts and neighbourhoods and all that. So as long as they're investing in local talent, it's really not a big deal.
2: Which they're not. They're just exactly <laughs> they're pulling it over the reporters to national exactly.
3: coverage. I, Those... I, I
2: applaud your attempt to get optimism into that, but <laughs> no.
3: Yeah, if it they do seems... both, it's not an yeah. issue. But they're not going to do both, are they? So, but, it's
2: as well. I think Joshy Joshy Herman of yeah. the Manchester Mill has done a big like a number of big threads yep. on this because obviously, like this benefits him quite a lot because he can sit there and say, yep. "Yeah, well, ninety-eight percent of my audience are Man- uh, you know Manchester based."
3: Mm. Uh, did, yeah, he was did, all over did,
2: um, us. Did Reach say they were setting the targets just before we went on break or was that just after we went on break? They, yeah, there was this big thing that went out that they were going to oh. incentivize. Like, it was like 85,000 minimum page views per reporter or Oh, yeah, It was a huge outcry about okay. Oh, yeah.
3: I thought that was years ago. No, that no, was. <laughs> <it> was- <laughs> Reach is a fascinating organization. Yeah. They do some yeah, amazing stuff. You know, the stuff that they did uh, at the Podcast Awards. Mm. The 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 the, the ones they had the one for community podcast, didn't they? Was it? Yeah. Yummy Brommy Mummies, sorry. Brommy Mummies. They do some amazing stuff and then they do some utter shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's a strange, strange organization.
1: The duality of MEN.
3: Yeah, M E N's a great example.
2: But yeah, Facebook's product uh Facebook's podcast support did not last a couple of years. It didn't even last I think it lasted a year and two weeks. Um so last April. Longer announced-
3: than CNN Plus. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, longer than Quibi as well. Longer um, than Quibi. Last April they announced a suite of new audio products like live audio rooms, voice messages and support for playing podcasts from pages. It was around the same time Clubhouse was cool. So, you know, they just shot <laughs> a copy of something else.
1: A lot Co- of plosives in that sense. Hmm, I
3: think not.
2: Um, this week, however, they announced that they were actually, they were basically just ditching the whole lot. They were planning to remove <laughs> Clubhouse from the platform altogether. Yeah. It never got outside the US. I had tried to get it set up on ours. Um, and they're discontinuing a number of things like their short form audio product bites, and they're removing it a central audio hub.
1: They had a um, central audio hub?
2: Well, not a central audio hub that launched anywhere outside the US. Um, oh. th- th- they're sort of ditching a load of other tools as well, like, you know, nearby friends, weather alerts, and some location stuff. Oh, that's creepy.
3: Um, nearby friends. I didn't know anything. Yeah, I don't that. like that. I don't I like that.
2: Creepy. They basically look like they're just they're just trying to force everybody to watch Reels now. That's obviously TikTok's their biggest competitor. Um, so, yeah, they're just trying to turn everybody into real fans ah. by showing them Reels everywhere. Oh, see so what you did,
1: though. That's, that's good.
2: I actually didn't mean to do that. It's too Real
1: reels for my real friends. I
3: actually Sh- reels for my I chaper- don't go on Facebook very much, um, but when I do, I find myself watching those stupid vegan friends. <laughs> it's just insidious.
2: I, I refuse on a matter of principle. The thing I thought was quite sad about this is that actually, when they first announced this, I thought this would be quite a good opportunity to kind of introduce podcasts to... Again, probably Facebook's slightly older population, They're the ones that weren't quite so familiar with podcast apps, um, and it just seems it, it seems like a bit of a missed opportunity now because they've just... just
1: people who are scared of self checkout machines. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Me, but you know, if, if you could sort of if you could share a podcast on your on your feed or whatever and, and watch it from or listen to it from the from the site and app, yeah, it, I, that that could have really opened up a big opportunity, but they just seem to be like, eh.
1: Uh, Finally, Le Monde is attempting to broaden its subscription base by targeting English-speaking audiences. So the US currently represents its fourth largest market already, with the first three consisting primarily of French-speaking countries and provinces. So one week after launching its English-language product, Le Monde had generated 1,000 new subscribers digitally, and by the end of the year, it hopes to raise that number to 30,000. There's a couple of things that build on topics that we've spoken about before. The first is that competition for subscribers in English is about to become more heated. The cost of actually doing this is relatively low compared to the potential benefits. So I think we're going to see a lot of non-English language titles actually try this. And the second point is that this is potentially the beginning of what Wolfgang Blau argued is necessary, which is for European newspapers to tell the story of Europe on their own terms, rather than relying on native English-speaking newspapers to do so. I think
3: that last point is important. Mm-hmm. I don't know how easy that'll be. We Actually, we need someone from Europe to talk about this because as English speakers, we're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> und- like,
2: I don't know. I get that China, you know, put the Europe on Europe's own terms, but why then target US subscribers? You're you're already going up against some of the biggest and best subscription giants who are covering people's home. Well, because... Country. Like, why? why? <laughs> Obviously, the... No well think. I think who in but, America is going to want to subscribe to Le Monde well, in English?
3: Th- well, think about it. If you're a sensible American and you're getting, you know, we we don't see it, but the, there's there's people who are very opposed to the New York Times' editorial line.
1: Oh yeah, I'm so, seeing more and more of that.
3: So if you're if you feel isolated from that point of view, and then you look to the un, other main English speaking media market. You want a different point of view. So there's definitely an audience for this. It's how big that audience is. Mm. I mean, I, I would I would read a European point of view on this stuff because
2: But that's that's right. It it would have been more interesting for them to say that they were gonna to try and target the the rest of Europe, who the majority of whom speak English as well, rather than try and go overseas mm. because Europe is kind of still feels like it's missing that. I just said the, the US is not an underserved media market. There are plenty of markets that aren't deserved. Why not look elsewhere? Anyway.
1: Tell that to Semaphore. <laughs> That's
2: my humble opinion. Well, exactly that. <laughs> this week, I spoke to Snigda Sir, who is founder and CEO of The Juggernaut, a three-year-old publication for global South Asians. I started by asking her how she'd come to found the publication from working at McKinsey and where the idea came from.
0: Yeah, I had been thinking about the juggernaut in so many different avatars way before McKinsey. Like, you know, growing up, thinking about the stories we hear in high school or college or, you know, in our history classes versus the stories I would hear at home from my mom. And thinking about why so many of the stories that you I heard at home were never showing up in our textbooks. and our textbooks were kind of telling the simplest versions of things. So for example, finding out that, you know, Asian Americans have been, a, a, you know, one of the most discriminated against ethnicities in U.S. history. And many of them had been immigrating to the U.S. for a long time. And they had assimilated by marrying other people and kind of disappearing. Like that's how they kind of subsisted in America for years before 1965 and the Hartzeller Act. So finding out these kind of stories about us, and I, th- I think, well, why why aren't more companies or newspapers or publications covering these stories? And I realized, well, you know, if math doesn't add up. If you are a mainstream publication like the guardian or the New York times, you have so many competing interests and you have to be the paper of record for the mainstream and the masses. That means some of the biggest stories get to become the ones that you really cover and stories that seem niche or not, not mainstream enough don't really get covered with that frequency or as high a frequency or as in depth and when i saw that gap i started testing it with a free newsletter which you might have hinted at earlier where i was aggregating other people's stories about us in our community and writing a little bit of my own analysis and sending it out to my friends for free every week and it was very sporadic actually initially i wanted it to be every week but i think i was like okay once a week every two months like it wasn't very very consistent And the open rates were really, really high. People were just hadn't really seen verticalization in that way before. And that gave me enough confidence to think, well, how can I quit my job and start doing this more and make sure that it is a business? So I basically stopped going to boozy brunches and stopped going to fancy trips or all the things that you do, I guess, when you're a consultant and saved up a ton of money and then waited. I think I waited until I had five months of personal runway. And I quit my job and I started, you know, first of all, releasing the newsletter more consistently instead of sporadically. Then I started talking to investors in New York and the West Coast. And I told myself if I couldn't find funding, then it might not be an idea <laughs> worth investing in or, or or I would invest in it myself. And everyone in New York thought I was had a harebrained idea because they had been working with Vice and Aussie and... And Posts, and they were they said, Well, how is this different from this? And we've gotten our fingers burned. And I would say this is very, very different. We're targeting a very specific community that's undertapped, undercovered, and I think it's going to be different. But ultimately, um, it was West Coast investors who believed in me. So I went to Y Combinator, showed them my information, like printed out my MailChimp numbers, and I said, Hey, here's what our data looks like. And they ended up backing us, and the rest happened from there.
2: And I want to just backtrack a bit because you've you've got quite an interesting background that's very much non-standard for a traditional media founder. So, yeah, can, can you just talk a little bit about that and I suppose why you wouldn't consider yourself a journalist?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think what's interesting here is I'm not technically a professional journalist. I've never been a journalist um, in a professional setting before I started my own company and my background some would say is more business oriented but i would argue that i have been reading writing and editing since i can i can really remember i you know i used to have a queens library card and i would go every day take out 25 books and just read a ton and i still remember those days like i think i was 7 and i i, I remember writing legit a book of poetry writing like 10 poems printing them out on my cousin's computer binding them with maybe <laughs> ribbon and giving it to like my aunts and uncles and cousins and be like, here's my book of poetry. Like I was super, I was, I was really into it. And then when I went to high school, I ran my high school paper for four years and we were in New York City. So we would have journalists from the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal and, you know, WAPO come in and teach us. And I would end up winning awards, I guess, for some of my writing and was the Al Newhart free spirit scholar for New York. So it went to the best female and male journalists Uh, senior journalists in the state for high school and went off to college and wrote and photographed for my college paper for two years before I suddenly realized that I couldn't come home at 4 a.m. every day and still do my work. So I quit. Um, But, you know, I always thought I'd be a journalist. And I think along the way I sort of realized that I, I wanted a bit more because, you know, I do come from an immigrant family and I was looking at the jobs out there and I was like, wait, I think I need to do more. And ended up um, going into the dark side as we've chatted about before. <laughs> and my I was an economics and South Asian studies major, and then I worked at McKinsey for a couple of years. I got a return offer, so I moved to Bombay and I worked in everything from you know Bollywood film production to helping scroll India, think about ad revenue. I graduated, I like I then went to business school and graduated, and um, during my summer internship worked at a company that was a PE firm that had invested in Hello Sunshine. Reese Witherspoon's company, did financial projections for that. Um, graduated, went to McKinsey, went back to McKinsey for about a year. And that's when I started the Juggernaut. So I always say my heart and soul is very much that of a writer and a novelist. But I guess my brain also has the business side.
2: Yeah. I, I know there are a lot of, um, I suppose, purists who probably say, you know, sort of editorial and business need to be very much kept separate. But I, I think one of the things that's definitely played out over the last well, probably five, 10 years, is that actually that business knowledge can be a real edge. So are there things that you've learned with sort of your knowledge of media VC and funding that has influenced how you approach or run the Juggernaut?
0: That's a great question. I would say that, you know, we've also talked about this a little bit about Substack and the rise of like individuals who become, you know, entrepreneurs who realize, hey, I have a specialty I can really, really write about and grow my own business and support myself way better than if I were a teammate at a larger publication.
2: And without needing that journalism qualification on your CV. Exactly. And many of them haven't gone to
0: journalism school. Many of them haven't been official journalists, but they have deep expertise in something and passion for something. And hopefully great editors or find a great editor. And they know how to write, as you said. And so I think where, where my business experience has been super helpful is that I was very, very thoughtful about initial conditions. Because um, when you think about it, it's really the business model you start with kind of shapes the operations and processes of your company yeah and what i mean to say here is if you start free right your game plan is to get as many eyeballs as possible so that you can you know get as many advertisers as possible and get as much you know ad revenue as possible and then your operations are really about well what's my biggest mainstream article hits how do i get these advertisers to sign on how do i get more and more traffic to my site you can see automatically how your staffing up your team in a completely different way. If you start initial conditions as a subscription company, you're much more focused on, am I reaching the right audience? Am I reaching the audience that can pay for this? Am I unlocking valuable topics that people feel like they wouldn't read anywhere else? Um, How do I optimize my site for frictionless payment? Suddenly you have very, very different, you know, processes and operations. You don't have to hire a sales team yet, but you might need to hire a marketing team that knows how to use paid ads, or you might need to hire really good engineers who understand how to optimize websites for load time and conversion. So you already see how that changes your editorial uh, standards and your editorial processes as well as your business operations. So I would say that that's something that was really important to me when I started out. Um, I talked to a bunch of folks in media, actually. I spoke to um, David Bradley, who had you know spun off Quartz from the Atlantic and had bought the Atlantic and turned it around. And I remember talking to him and he's like, you know what? you know, the days of just doing ads for for media businesses might just be over, right? Like you will see every single company from Axios to even Quartz, they ultimately tried a subscription product. Um, not all have succeeded, but they had to go that way or they mm-hmm. tried it. And you'll see the opposite way. You're seeing also, I also say just because we started subscription doesn't mean we're not going to do ads. You're seeing Netflix start testing out ad-supported models in emerging markets. You're seeing... Um, even when Hulu started having ads as a, as a different tier. So I do think that not saying you are married to one model ever, I do think business mo- models can be very much changeable and evolve, but I do believe in the theory of initial conditions, defining how you're staffing up your team and, how, and your ethos and your general ethos, which is hard to kind of
2: undo or change immediately, but takes some time. So the newsletter is free. What, what about the other products? Like what's free, what's paid? So we started the
0: stuff that was free that felt as if it was in its natural context. So let me explain. People are used to free newsletters, right? Like people are used to audio being free and podcasts being free. So we did launch a podcast recently that was free. That's on all the platforms you can listen to. And our newsletter is free because people are used to that. And of course, Upside changed that meaningfully, but I would argue that some of those newsletters that charge you for their newsletter definitely operate more like a subscription publication than just <laughs> yes. a newsletter right? It's not like a newsletter. But yeah. historically, newsletters have always been like, oh, let me just catch you up. It's this personal connection, and it's usually free. And so that's how we kind of decided, whereas people are more used to a paywall for written content. Um, and, and I get really, really annoyed. This is my personal pet peeve going back to have the founder can influence a company. I get so annoyed when I've paid a subscription to the likes of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and then I scroll and I'm in the subway, and then suddenly my article's not loading because there's a big gray blob. where the the ad is supposed to load you know that's just so frustrating so whereas people are more used to hearing personalized ads in a podcast or they're used to hearing seeing that oh this newsletter is sponsored by blah 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 that just seems a little bit less um, invasive
2: and I think probably related to that you've already touched on this a bit but fully paywalled publications sometimes struggle a bit with drawing in new readers like courts actually just said that they're dropping their paywall pretty much for that reason so uh, if if your content is all paywalled, how do you bring new readers on board? Yeah, I you know I love that Quartz question
0: because it actually goes back to my theory of initial conditions, which is Quartz started out free. Yeah, which means that it was so good at finding an audience for at least five years that was so used to their incredible content for free. And guess what? Publishers were um, sorry, advertisers were also lapping it up. So it was really easy for them to create great. Um, advertisers who were paying premium dollars for this amazingly um, large, large audience. And so what happened is that another company, you know, acquired Quartz and they were used to more paywalled content. But once you start adding a paywall to an audience that was not used to it, it's really, really difficult to convert them because they're used to it. And so I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, it's just change hands back again and some of the original folks at Quartz are now leading the company again. And I think they're realizing that they want to go back to their original operating principles, because that's how they originally staffed up. That is the strengths of their team. Um, And I'm pretty sure, you know, a lot of people always, you know, muse that maybe Axios wouldn't have had as much of a chance if Quartz had been also free at the same time and continuing doing what it was doing. So there's so many interesting stories like that. So Full paywall sites, very difficult. And, you know, Substack can show this as well. The reason we went with a hard paywall, which many successful companies have done from Peloton to Netflix to Financial Times, is because we knew exactly who our audience was. We thought, like, we know that we have a specific audience. We know what kind of stories they like. We want to do a hard paywall because we don't want them to start metering their usage. Like our audience, mm-hmm. once they likes us, they really want to read all our stuff. So we thought, well, how do we make it a hard paywall? So they you know, come in, they pay, and then they want to read a ton of it as soon as they're in. And I think that kind of behavior is harder to do with a meter. Because when you read a meter, you keep on wanting to like, refresh your browser, refresh your cookies, start a new window. It, it's just a lot of steps. And it also means that your incentives are to add like, more meat and potatoes, whereas we think like, every single one of our articles, we're like, wait, we don't want to give this one away for free. Like, we're, <laughs> and we, You know what I mean? Like, we're like, oh, no, we don't want to do that. Um, and so it does mean that it's harder, right? When I talked to the athletic, which was also a hard paywall company, it was really hard for them to get their first 10,000 paying subscribers, right? Because they have to really convince people hard. And now they're at a situation where they just exited their company, you know, and sold it (laughs) to the New York times. And a lot of that discipline of hard paywall is very much the same discipline that the New York times now has too, right? They really make you register and do all these things. Um, before you can get an article for free. And you're seeing that people who are exceptionally good at a strategy keep on experimenting with that strategy until they get it right, until they know that there's no other opportunity.
2: I think The Athletic lost some of its um, strategy around the, the pricing. They seem to do a lot of sort of cut pricing during the pandemic, but...
0: <laughs> yes, I mean, pricing Pricing is such an interesting topic that I'd love to talk about, but like, we don't do discounts. And the reason we don't do discounts is because we specifically know our demographic loves discounts, so they're going to wait for a <laughs> discount. And so we're like, you know what? We're not going to do that. We don't do discounts. We do give you an incentive to sign up for an annual plan. We make that forty percent off from the monthly plan, but we don't do dis- discounts. It was a really, really hard thing to do because it again requires discipline because it's so <laughs> much easier to do a sale. But we we we've been, you know, we've just taken that. I guess taken that uh, slow but steady convincing of our value proposition you do have gift options is that something you see people take up a lot oh yes people love yes I think we could do an even better job of letting people know we have a gift subscription but yes people give a lot of gifts during the volley they give it to their you know when when you have that friend who has everything and they're like what else can I give them it's, <laughs> it's usually a nice gift to give them something like a gift to the juggernaut and people do use it the other kind of option that I've been surprised about is a lifetime plan so we have a lifetime plan, which we stole as an option from Calm, which is also an incredible subscription media company. And we thought, OK, no one's going to really take up the lifetime option. Like, who's going to do that? And like, we've had several people take up the lifetime option. And some of them have even told us, we would pay you even more. And so we changed our lifetime option to be choose what you pay with a minimum. And many of these lifetime subscribers, some of them ended up becoming investors. So you never know. You truly never know. There are people who are out there who just want to give you more.
2: So how did you sort of decide on the pricing when you were looking at all those potential models you could go down?
0: Yeah, so the way we thought about pricing initially is that we wanted to make it as simple as possible to understand, and but not so low that people would think we were somehow cheap. And so mm. our initial pricing for annual, we made it a dollar a week, very similar to when the New York Times dis- discounts, it's like, it's a dollar a week. Um, and that's how we started. And then monthly, we were $4.99 a month. And then we started realizing that our monthly subscribers were our worst customers because they would just come in taste it and then leave. And so we were like, you know what, <laughs> we're going to make the barrier to entry a little bit more painful. And so we made monthly subscriptions, 999, no free trial. And that made the annual plan seem even more of a deal. And we'd see more people switch to the annual plan. The other thing we started realizing is that as we grew and we wanted to pay writers more and more, you know, in the beginning, we couldn't pay writers that much. We we did do an inaugural offer and then we realized, wait, we want to pay our writers even more and we can't compete if we keep our prices so low. So then we increased our annual rate from 52 to $72. But unlike the New York Times, we don't change prices on you. Like once mm-hmm. you sign up for a plan, you're grandfathered in for life. And so because we don't believe in discounts, we don't do this whole bait and switch where we're like, our plan is actually $200. We'll give it to you for $52 for the first year. but then it's $200 after that. We don't do that. So... Who knows? Maybe, you know, New York Times knows something that I don't. But, um, you know, we've been very thoughtful about that. So we're now $72 a year for the annual plan.
2: So do you find like new subscribers come from, is it recommendations or newsletter or social media? Like like what's what's the funnel look like there?
0: One of the most successful campaigns we've ever run is through our newsletter where we would email the folks on our free newsletter who had really high open rates, but were not paying subscribers. And we sent them what we called a loyal lurker uh, drip email. I think <laughs> it lasted over three weeks where we'd be like, hey, you're one of our most avid newsletter readers. But did you know we also have this paid product? And did you know that this newsletter is being written by somebody who's getting paid for it? And you know, you're know, you like the few percent of people with this high rate that's not a subscriber. And <laughs> you'd be surprised. We, got a, we guilted a lot of people into subscribing. <laughs> and um, so I highly, highly recommend people. As they're thinking about growth strategies, this was recommended to us. We went through actually a Facebook journalism program accelerator or a meta journalism program accelerator and they highly recommended email is one of the most underutilized channels and have basically a $0 CAC. So tap into your existing supporters who might not know you even have a paid product or who might not know what goes into you know running a media company. And that was a really, really helpful advice. We also get about 50% of our new subscribers say they first heard about us through Instagram and or Facebook. And it's unclear how much of them heard of, about us from a paid ad versus natural. So we've invested a lot in the super channel of, I always say every media company will have one super channel that they're really well known for. Like Washington post right now is really known for its TikTok because it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And so for us, we're really well known for our Instagram, which we think is really well curated, really well thought out, um, has over 110,000 followers. And so that's where a lot of our new subscribers first hear about us. Um, and we also do paid acquisition on Facebook and Instagram as well, because we have such a great organic reach there anyway. How do we kind of amplify that and invest in getting some new audiences? So um, if I were to share some generalizable principles, I'd say, you know, media companies especially young ones can't do it all. So pick a channel that you feel comfortable yep. with and your team feels comfortable with and really invest in that channel through organic measures, as well as later down the line, maybe potentially trying some paid. And then second is definitely, definitely, definitely grow your newsletter list and tap into that. And you'd be surprised how many people are great supporters there.
2: Yeah. I'd love to hear how the name The Juggernaut came around. Yes.
0: um, I love telling the story because I'm a spelling bee nerd, which I think (laughs) is one of the most intriguing practices of Americans, as you can say, where we have people stand up on the stage and spell. And so I was the New York city champion in 2001 and four and ended up going to the national spelling bee twice. And because of that, I've become obsessed with, you know, origins and etymology. And when I was looking to name the company, it was really important for me to do two things. One, make sure the trademark was available. Well, three things, one, make sure the trademark was available to make sure it had some form of South Asian roots and three, make sure the website was available. And so when I looked through, Juggernaut is actually originally a Sanskrit word that the British took and bastardized. So it looks like it could be like a Greek word, like the N-A-U-T, right? Like nautical, you know, argonaut or astronaut. But it's actually spelled like a Greek word, but comes from juggernaut, which is a Sanskrit word, which means lord of the world. And it usually references an unstoppable force. And I thought it would be really intriguing for us to reclaim the term and call it a juggernaut. So that's that's what we did. And the juggernaut.com was available. So... And the trademark was as well, so we went with that.
2: (laughs) Um, And you've just well recently launched a podcast. So how does that all fit as the part of the product mix? You've mentioned it's free. It
0: is free. Yes. So one of the things that
2: you know, again,
0: going back to being an early media company, we thought, well, let's you know, let's figure out how we can land and then expand. So you know, first was a newsletter. Then we did you know originally reported articles. And then we said, well, let's try our hand at a podcast. And so it was a test and it is a test. And we think we've done a pretty good job. And it's a QA and a where I sit and talk to South Asian founders who have raised money, venture capital in North America, and they are of multiple backgrounds. And I get to talk to them about their journeys, what they experience individually, what, you know, what their companies are. And it's been really fun. It's called the Juggernaut Interviews, colon, Founders. Though I am thinking about renaming it to Unstoppable, colon, South Asian Founder, So stay tuned. Um, but it's been a really fun ride because I get to talk to all these other founders of their journeys and hopefully ask them really tough questions that other people aren't asking them.
2: Um, I'm just curious. So when you're approaching stories, whether that be for the podcast or the website or whatever else, do you tend to look at what's going on and try and put a sort of South Asian lens on it? Or is it very much more you sort of go and try and find stories that other people aren't covering? Or is it a bit of both?
0: So the way we think about our editorial process is we definitely look at timely stories and try to figure out what the larger story is. We don't compete with um, news agencies or wires. We can't compete with the AP or Reuters or any of that because they're going to be way faster than us. But we can do what we can do is definitely tell the slower version of that story or tell the bigger trend story. So for example, last year, unfortunately, and even it's continuing this year there's been a huge spike in anti-Asian hate crimes. Mm. And so we did this story where we kind of looked at it and said, well, how are South Asians feeling about it? Because a lot of the conversation at a certain time was about East Asians and Southeast Asians. And we said, well, we have to recognize that many of these crimes are happening in these specific communities. We also have to recognize that there has been so much trauma against all of these communities, including South Asian communities, for a long time, you know, post 9-11, even to this day, People who are sick and wear turbans get targeted. And so that was a very interesting story that we wrote because it allowed us to kind of examine this trend, but also talk to people in our community and actually solicit and understand what they were feeling. Um, And then the second part you said is like, what's not being covered? A hundred percent. We do that a lot. So one of the stories that we covered this year, it was technically the 40th anniversary of Maggie Noodles, which is a huge, you know, favorite like cuisine and food item for South Asians. And there's been so much covered about them from their recall in India to their branding. And so the angle that our writer took was, well, has it led to a slew of new experimental cooks who like make weird stuff with their Maggie? And it had, and that was one of our really fun nostalgia pieces, but that also covered this very familiar thing In a new way. And I think that that's sometimes what we think about, which is like, hey, what is timely that we can talk about that matters to our community? Number one, like even Bridgerton has been a huge deal for community season two. Then Number two, how can we talk about things that other people might not be talking about because it's not so obvious and then add our kind of spin to it and our unique angle to it?
2: so you've got the subscription thing very much in hand you've got the podcast that's launched what's your next area of focus for the juggernaut like is there anything you've seen other media orgs do that you might like to try yourself
0: i've sort of hinted at it but i am so stoked to actually launch our tiktok more properly we've (laughs) invested we've invested a little bit more in video this year and we've done youtube shorts thanks to a google grant and we've also done more instagram reels but I'm so, so, so excited to figure out what our TikTok would look like because there's a lot of spicy takes there. There's a lot of South Asians on there. who are rocking it. And I think we have a huge um, you know potential to add to that conversation and amplify our work in a different medium. I strongly believe in meeting people where they are and also to be a little bit more ubiquitous, right? So we've also done way more events this year. We did two events in March, one which was a Q&A with Indra Nui, the former CEO of PepsiCo, and second, we help co-fund and co-sponsor an event in Los Angeles for all the South Asian nominees at the Oscars. And I think both of those things made us realize that we really want our community to feel like there's also a gathering place. So I, I'd say there's a top two initiatives, which is, A, how do we get into more video and TikTok? And B, how do we host more events that really bring our
2: community together?
0: Because it's really important part of what we're building as well.
2: Well, the last thing we ask all our guests is, what's the last thing you read or saw that really affected you? Oh. So I've
0: been made fun of for this, but I'll tell you why in a second. But I have been recently watching the Apple uh, series for Pachinko. And I absolutely love this movie. um, Or it's not a movie. It's a series. I absolutely love the original novel, Pachinko. It's by Min Jin Lee. It's about a Korean family, and she follows it over four generations. They end up in Japan. They kind of, it explores everything from who belongs How do we think about relationships? What do we tell people? What don't we tell people? Um, how do we relate to one another? You know, what does it mean? And I think that that book just left me with so many questions about identity and belonging and was a great highlight of stories we don't know, but have been so impactful in the world. I did not know that there were so many kind of Korean families who ended up in Japan who still felt foreign in Japan. And, um, It really resonated with me. So I, you know, I was watching the Apple show and I went back to reread the book a second time and I got made fun of by my partner because he's like, well, are you going to now rewatch the entire series from the beginning after you've reread the book? I'm like, no, 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 it's not going to happen like that. But it really left a deep impact on me.
3: So we had our podcast awards, when was that? Two weeks ago. A week now? Oh my God. I know. My life is flashing before. Anyway, we had our Publisher Podcast Awards in London. They were awesome. If you didn't go, you pure dead missed out. It was brilliant. <laughs> um, but if you didn't go and you want to know who won, the winners are over at PublisherPodcastAwards.com. Um, you're over there, you will find a page with some more information about our first ever Publisher Podcast Summit so you can tell us what topics you would like us to cover for that it will be likely in october is that right
2: yeah beginning of october uh, we're also restarting our publisher podcast insider meets which we're hoping to run a little more consistently now every six weeks or so and the first one's actually this coming wednesday on marketing and audience development but it's actually already full with a waiting list so mm. uh yeah you can't attend that one this time Um, But Mm -hmm. if you make sure you're you're subscribed to the mailing list on the website, publisherpodcastawards.com to find out when the next one is. Or we'll also mention it in our daily newsletter, which you can sign up for at voices.media.
1: And if you snooze, you lose. But until next week, when we'll be back with a great guest and hopefully a slightly more structured tour through all the news from the past week. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye.